This is Pod Scholarship, a podcast series where we meet scholars whose interest and expertise shed some light on the art and craft of podcasting, the podcast medium, and uh, the content creation economy. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. My co-hosts for today are Ryan Sperry, a sociologist at Queens College, and Na Ten, a sociology doctoral student at the CUNY Graduate Centre. For our first episode, we're going to meet Professor Susan Smullyan from Brown University. She is a professor in the American Studies Department and former director of the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage at Brown University. Professor Smullyan's most recent book, uh, Doing Public Humanities, is out with uh, Rutledge. But I wanted to talk to her today about an earlier book that she wrote, Selling Radio, the Commercialization of American Broadcasting, 1920 to 1934, with the Smithsonian Press. In the book, Professor Smullyan talks about the early commercialization of radio, and I thought the parallels between what happened to radio in the 20s and 30s is somewhat reminiscent of what we're seeing in podcasting today, and I thought it'd be a fun topic to explore. If you enjoy this episode and you want to see more of what we do at the Queen's Podcast Lab, pay us a visit. We're at queenspodcastlab.org. We are here with Susan Smullyan, Professor of American Studies and Public Humanities at Brown University. And, and for our listeners, most many of whom might not know about the field of public humanities, they're in the academy, might not know about it. What, what is that field? What, what do they do in public humanities? Well, we think of it as a way of connecting universities and communities. Uh, so both um, places can learn from each other. Uh, and so we try to think of this as collaborative work. So in some ways we are represented uh, best uh, by um, the group called Imagining America, uh, which is a group of scholars. I think their subtitle is Scholars and Artists uh, in Service to Their Community, something like that. Right. Um, and so when we, we try to do that, the, the, the case studies in the book are always a good way to go about it. My own is about a... Um, and a youth arts organization called New Urban Arts. And I worked there as a volunteer and as a board member and as development, um, I did some development work for them. I chaired a capital campaign. And it's about what I learned about teaching and working with across communities and universities uh, from this little scrappy uh, after school arts program uh, about three miles from Brown University. Um, they seem like they have nothing in common, but I learned a lot uh, working at, um, at that place. And so um, it talks a little about social practice art, this essay, and a lot about new urban arts and what you can learn uh, from them about how to work in, a, in and with a community. So I came, today we're talking about radio in particular. I came across Susan's 1994 book, Selling Radio, The Commercialization of American Broadcasting. 1920 to 1934. It was published uh, by the Smithsonian Press, and I really, really liked it. Um, our team here, we have uh, two uh, two team members here. I don't think I introduced them at the beginning. I'm very sorry. Uh, Ryan Sperry and Natan. Uh, Ryan and Na, do you want to introduce yourselves just so the listeners can hear your voices? Oh, hi. Um, my name is Natan. I'm a graduate student at uh, CUNY, the Graduate Center. 
And hi, I'm Ryan Sperry. I am a, a sociology professor in the Department of Sociology and Data Analytics at Queens College. Yeah, and, and we're working on a podcast uh, project about the development of the podcasting medium. And I walked into the book, uh, 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 Professor Smolian's book, uh, assuming that there'd be a lot of similarities between the early development of radio and the early development of podcasting. And throughout the book, I was struck by uh, how strong the parallels were. Yeah. There were far more and far stronger parallels than I had originally assumed. Like, uh, I didn't realize that there was a period in which radio was a lot like podcasting. You know, there were a lot of amateur programmers and a sense of opening up the world and seeing things that people didn't see. There was a struggle to find viable business models and big tech firms who were jockeying and worrying about antitrust. Uh, it was really like the parallels were really something else. And so I'm very grateful to Professor Smullyan for coming in today because the book was written in 1994. I would not be able to talk about anything that I'd written 10 years ago, but she's very gracious. So I, I appreciate you coming in to talk about it. No, my pleasure. So maybe we can start uh uh, by talking about the early development of radio, radio wasn't always organized as a system of stations who laid claim to particular frequencies and ran on a business model of, you know, around the clock broadcasting with paid advertisements every 20 minutes, right? This is, it didn't just automatically start like that. There was a period in which there were people broadcasting from their garages. Like, was that the ham radio era or? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's even, I mean, ham radio was even before people uh, broad, broadcasting because ham radio was really narrow casting. It was uh, one person um, sending out a signal mostly to reach another person. Uh, they, they, people talked across the radio waves uh, instead of using the telephone wires and mostly young men, mostly young white men, uh, but not exclusively, uh, got very interested in the technology. Um, much like, you know, people who put together computers in their bedrooms or um, uh, it, all sorts of new technologies develop with amateurs. And so these were amateurs who sort of figured out how to use this new technology to talk to each other uh, across the airways. No one, um, you know, their parents didn't know who they were talking to. Um, so the story was always that you had this young, enterprising, young white guy who would um, you know, beg, borrow, and steal the parts to make um, a ham radio, um, and and sometimes only to listen, not even to, and and that's what set it, set this off. But but both. So he would. Um, the the apocryphal story is that they would people would um, uh, um, slice off the wire um, at, in a telephone booth and take the uh, the hand, handle set. They would get an oatmeal box. They would they would empty out the oatmeal from the box, the round box in their parents' uh, kitchen. They would steal wire from construction sites and they would have to buy um, the little piece of crystal uh, that would help them tune this uh, contraption. Um, and they would, they would run the wire around the um, around the oatmeal box and they would use this little piece of crystal that they bought in like a hobby shop um, or through the mail. And then they would, and they would put on the headsets um, or, or listen on a, on a handset the way we used to listen on telephones. Uh, and they would, they would be in business. Uh, it would, it didn't cost much. Uh, and it, and it didn't work for 
huge distances, but the way radio waves work, sometimes it did work for huge distances. They would skip along. Then comes World War One. Everything shuts down um, because the people were afraid. Um, uh, the government was afraid that these amateur um, transmissions would interfere with uh, ship to shore. Um, and then the guys who came back from World War One had often been the, the guys who'd been practicing this and who stolen the oatmeal boxes and wound the wire were the ones who joined the radio corps in world war one and they discovered vacuum tubes um which made everything better uh sound was better the, the everything was was easier and often on their way home the radio corps guys would put a couple of vacuum tubes which they called audions uh in their pocket on their way out the door because they were hard to get uh because they had been saved for the government and they'd get home and then their radios were really great and everybody wanted radios with, with vacuum tubes. And so then eventually the vacuum tube market opened up and people could buy those and put them together themselves. And then after World War II, um, World War I, um, as people came back, they, these, the, these um, radio systems that they were making in, by themselves were were these handmade, homemade radio sets got more and more sophisticated and could reach farther and farther. And that's when they sort of, um, one guy, you know, the specialization set in. Somebody was really good at spinning um, records and could put up a, a, a microphone next to a record player and could, and could, you know, broadcast, everybody would listen to him. Uh, or somebody's mom would play the piano and they could, everybody could listen to that. And so then you start to get broadcasting one transmitter many receivers. Okay, what year are we when we get the person playing uh, records and is known through? Well, the first is, um, the first one that we, that most people talk about is uh, Conrad, right? So he becomes um, the the beginnings of um, the radio station in in Pittsburgh. Um, And and so I do. First of all, I'm not going to hold you to that, but it's basically in Pittsburgh. It, yeah. around the 1920s so he's a westinghouse engineer and he begins to air a regular program of recorded music from a well-made transmitter in his pittsburgh garage um and so you know it it, it grows and grows and grows until it becomes the, the the first in some ways kdka becomes the first uh radio station uh, what people always say is the first broadcasting state or other people doing it. Uh, but his equipment was really good. And Westinghouse, which was making, starting to make um, factory made radios, um, thought, well, you know, what David Sarnoff says, what's a, a radio without a transmitter, without something to listen to, is just an ice box without ice. Uh, so Westinghouse, which is making radios, says, oh, we got to have something for people to listen to. And it turns out one of their guys, Con- Frank Conrad, is in his garage in Pittsburgh sending out stuff. So they say, Frank, and they put him on the, the, the top, um, the, the top floor, the roof of the, of the Westinghouse building in Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And he gets some call letters and in the early 20s and off they go. Wait, who, who gives out the call letters back in the day? How did that work? Oh, that, you know, that's a good question. So um, uh, the, the Department of the Interior, uh, the Secretary of the Interior, who at that time is Herbert Hoover, and he has a series that he sponsors, Interior Secretary sponsors a series of uh, radio conferences to sort of figure out what the heck are we going to do with this? Do we need regulation? 
Um, you know, are these guys bumping into each other? Are, are they interfering with the ship to shore? How do we regulate these rowdy amateurs? So, uh, wait, so one thing that I loved about that, right, was this idea that radio stations were developed by large corporations for the purpose of selling devices. Again, it's an amazing parallel between Apple putting up the iTunes system yes, exactly. in order to sell podcasts. Is this is yes. is it often that the uh, the equipment manufacturers play a big role in developing content to move devices? Has this happened? Was this the case? Well, it wasn't the only thing that happened. There were a bunch of other kinds of stations, just as there are a bunch of other kinds of podcasts, right? So there are guys in their their you know living rooms um, and sending out uh, programs to the world, newspapers. Um, started radio stations because they're like, yeah, we keep getting scooped. You know, we can't let that radio guy down the block pick up our newspaper, read it into the radio, and then we got nothing. You know, why would anybody buy our newspaper? Everybody worried about just as with podcasts, who's where's the money? Uh, how how are we gonna? You know, who's gonna make money from this? So there's a lot of different models um, that go along. And one of my points, my original points in the book which I was never able to explain to, for example, my father, um, was was that this was not inevitable, that, that the way in which radio developed, there were all these different possibilities. And and the, the deck, of course, is stacked uh, for the big corporations. Uh, but there were other possibilities besides having commercials on the radio to fund uh, broadcasting. Um, you know, they could have paid Westinghouse could have said, hey, you know, we as could have Apple. Hey, you know, you you buy an iPhone or an iPod, you got to have something to listen to. So we'll just make as much money as we need uh, to feed our families and to and to you know make new equipment and 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 we'll we'll give you the content. Uh, that could have happened. Uh, there's no reason that couldn't happen. It could have been the department stores, which funded radio stations for years um, could have just said, oh, we'll fund the radio station uh, and we'll advertise our sales. And, you know, they're a big institution, another big company. Um, so it could, it, it could be, it's also the other, the other group that was really interested was AT&T, which owned the wires uh, that connected everything. And so here comes a competitor. We're going to do this all wirelessly. But in truth, radio technology was not good enough to do it all wirelessly. They couldn't figure out how to get the, the U.S. a big country, couldn't figure out how to get the signal across the whole country um, wirelessly. So they used, um, uh, so so the broadcasters, early broadcasters needed, um, if they wanted to broadcast to the whole country, they needed these uh, um, um, telephone wires. And so AT and AT&T was like sort of interested. They're like, well, maybe we should do radio. Uh, and you know, maybe, maybe that, that's where we'll make our money. Maybe, maybe this TV, maybe this telephone stuff. Yeah, that'd be good. But maybe we can have this other stuff too. And that's when, you know, the, the fights broke out among the big corporations. Who's going to control this? Who's going to make the money from it? Where's the money to be made? Right. So I gather, right. There was, so there was an early period where it wasn't very obvious how society would organize the production of radio content. And there's even a great piece in your book where they have a company has a contest asking for ideas of how to monetize or pay for podcast or radio. Who pay? Yeah. Who pays? For yeah. Who radio? pays? For it? And then the winner was one that they didn't like any of them. 
And they gave the prize to somebody who proposed the development of a government entity that would disperse production grants. And they said, here's the winner. And we don't even like that one. So it wasn't, it wasn't really obvious. And again, that's a lot like where we are today. Yeah. Uh, well, in fact, the government entity is what many other countries did. Right. You know, Canada falling off um, Great Britain, um, now the UK, Australia, Russia, you know, lots of countries did did this other model where um, instead of being based on the on a on big corporate um, manufacturing companies, it was based on government funded um, services like the post office. Right. Uh, so that people thought of radio as as, as like a service uh, that the government would provide uh, and would regulate. Uh, and so that and that actually not a stupid idea. That, you know, has worked very well in many countries. Well, even here, right? WNYC in New York, our much beloved NPR station was. Those are never funded by the government. Uh, you know, at WNYC is funded by the government for like a minute, a little while. Uh, but that's and there are municipal stations. That's another possibility, municipal stations, but never the federal government. Um, you know, now NPR funded a little bit uh, by the federal government, but, but, but not like the BBC. Um, so there are some municipal stations back in the day. That's one of the other models, you know, newspapers, department stores, uh, manufacturing companies, uh, yeah, municipal stations, um, local folks who just get together and find a way. And when was the BBC coming around? I mean, as another model. Exactly the same time, 20s. Yeah, exactly the same time. And, wow. the, and, and we went, people went in two different directions. There's been some good scholarship about, uh, there's my book and then and, um, Michelle Helms has written about the BBC and how, why that is um, the, the, a different choice. Um, I, my book, one of the things I say is, uh, is some of it is about the size of the United States. Uh, and the, the, and, and because most places that go with a, with a government, with a government sponsored smaller, uh, you can put up three or four radio stations and manage, uh, to cover the whole country. Um, and Canada and Australia bigger, but they come out of the British system. So they don't, they, and they have terrible problems. They can't quite figure out how to get a national radio system because it's expensive. Uh, and so you know, it isn't, at this moment, it's the the um, the technology is more expensive. That's one thing that's different from podcasting, where the technology is pretty cheap. At this point, the tech it's cheap if you just want to talk to your neighbors, uh, but it's expensive if you want to talk to the whole country. And very quickly, this sort of national model, everybody listening to the same thing at the same time, which we now have. That's the other thing that's different. Have so far gotten away. You know, what What do we all watch or listen to at the same time? Very little. Uh, and, you know, once in a while. But, you know, nobody, not everybody tunes in at six o'clock right. for Walter Cronkite. Uh, you know, or, or, or everybody doesn't tune in. Nobody watches their TV shows at the same time anymore. But this was a really exciting and important moment. And people really wanted to all be watching, all be listening to the same show at the same time. They liked feeling part of, um, what is it? Um, the, the invisible audience. My friend, Jay, um, Jason Laviglio has a, has a phrase for it that it's, I'm, I've lost it, but I'll figure it. I'll remember it in a minute, but Jason's book, 
is 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 about that you know that sense that we're all tied together. Yeah, I was wondering whether or not that this desire to listen to one program at the same time has to do with um, with this particular time period between World War One and World War Two. It could be, you know, there's moments, and and you know, I don't, I, you know, we there's a always a goal in the United States. We always have this feeling that our national uh, uh, bonds are fraying uh, because it's heterogeneous, uh, and and we're always trying to figure out ways to tighten those national bonds. Sometimes, um, you know jingoistically, sometimes, you know, in, in terrible ways, and in sometimes in cultural ways. Uh, and, and that, when, when you have, what I posited was that in more homogeneous countries, it, people didn't, it wasn't as big a, it wasn't as big an issue. Um, in Russia, which I know very little about, but I love as a as an alternative. The, the, the government ran the radio stations, but they didn't care about everybody. Yeah, they covered a lot of uh, time zones and they they just everybody listened locally uh you know if you were in mongolia you listened in i don't know <laughs> but 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 in the united states people really the the farmers in in the midwest wanted to hear the the numbers from the chicago um uh exchange to see what crops were going for everybody wanted to follow their own sports teams when they were on the road um you know people from from the folks who'd done the great migration, African American and white folks who'd moved from the south to the to the rural, from the rural south to the urban north, wanted to hear um, what we now call country music, what they called hillbilly music then, uh, so that the Grand Old Opry, uh, so that everybody could hear. I mean, people moved around a lot, uh, and and it may be now that it's the now that you say it that people did move around a lot more um between the two wars that's a time of great um mobility um and so it may be that that's well, one I mean, of the things i mean it did spur on. interest in broadcasting for example different cities baseball games or things like that didn't it you speak about sports and sports ability as a as an yep. I have, a, I have a question about uh, scarcity because one impression that I had uh, that we were discussing this morning is that eventually it seems like the radio industry realized that there was only a finite amount of spectrum that could handle large uh, or high-powered broadcasts. Like you talk about how static interference started uh, limiting people's potential. And eventually, spectrum did spectrum become scarce, at least like in big markets like New York? And did that sort of make it so that you needed a lot of money to continue broadcasting or? Well, I think that's true. And, uh, um, and, that, and what happened is one of the ways in which the frequencies were allocated and, and, and organized and you know, was was by by making the government the the what became the Federal Radio Commission, um, an administrative um, part of the executive branch set up by Congress uh, to to regulate radio. Basically, um, it said that the radio stations that would get frequency allocations would have to be um, ones that were very well equipped. 
Uh, that was one of the ways they cut out a bunch of people. Uh, and so those went to the folks right. who had the most money. You had the best trans, you had to have a particularly right. good kind of transmitter so that it didn't wander across the spectrum, didn't interfere with other people's. And so they always had an excuse for why they were allocating in this way, this somewhat scarce resource. It's never, I, you know, I just not enough of a physicist to know if in fact, I think they believed and the technology of the time made it a scarce resource. It was never, it's never clear to me if it's as scarce as they think it is. I think that the other problem is the where the other, so one of the expenses that cuts out the small um, broadcasters is these uh, expenses to have um, uh, particular kinds and, and, you know, high technology transmitters that, that the F Federal Radio Commission insisted on in order to assign you a frequency. The other was um, that that the, the 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 programs themselves couldn't reach across the country. They just didn't have the technology to send the programs wirelessly. So there began a, a, a and and there began a system. Um, it's also there began a system of of connecting small um, radio stations into a a, a network. Um, that were connected by how, how that wires. Um, so that the so the radio programs would be um, sent uh, in some ways it's a lot like streaming so it's so much easier to explain it to people now that people understand streaming so they were sent over the radio um, on a high on a big not your regular old um, uh, telephone wire but a but, you know a high frequency one and you would you would get the the radio um, the radio show would go right to your local station, uh, whatever it was, uh, and they would then rebroadcast it wirelessly. Uh, they would put it out over the air. Um, and that way, pretty much the same thing could be heard at the same time across the country. It also fits sort of this American idea that we like, we, we are distrustful of big companies at the same time, we love them, uh, and but we but in, we try always, especially in that moment, trying to break them up. And so this said, oh, it sort of put a, a facade, kind of a whitewash, on the fact that this was all being run by the big corporations, and it seemed like it was being run by your local radio station. So your local radio station would uh, pay the big corporations at that point, you know. NBC, the National Broadcasting Company, or CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, um, and and they would send them the programs, and then they would say, oh well, this is an NBC program broadcast locally from Providence, Rhode Island, uh, and and but you would all your your mom in Syracuse and your sister in Brooklyn and and your um, cousins in Philadelphia and wherever would all hear the program at the same time, but it would be all broadcast over there um, there. And, and AT&T, and this then I'm done, AT&T, who provided the telephone wires, said, look, guys, we'll get out of the radio business. We won't compete with you anymore. And we'll, we'll be done. But you pay us a billion zillion bucks uh, to rent our wires. Uh, and they basically bought off AT&T, uh, got them out of the radio business by paying these crazy fees to carry these um, radio shows to all these local companies. And so then Congress and the Federal Radio Commission never was interested in um, regulating the big radio companies, either the producers of the radio sets or the um, uh, 
producers of the programming, um, they just said, oh, no, we don't we don't do that because radio isn't a big corporate thing. It's just all these little radio stations. Pay no attention to those guys behind the curtain. Just look at your local radio station and we'll, we'll regulate that. No worries. We got that covered. Uh, but we don't need to break up any of these big companies because we're not, it, just don't pay any attention to that over there. I'd love for you to describe the controversy of advertisements when they first came in. Like people, so a lot of people did not like them. And then the second follow-up on that is, do you think that this type of anti-advertisement stuff is, like, do you really think people don't like advertisements? Like, I think of people who won't turn off the ad personalizations of Facebook or Google, you know, because they want targeted ads. There are, like, people will be willing to, to give up their privacy, surrender information about themselves to get tailored advertisements. Because, you know, I, I always wonder about that. First, let's talk about the controversy of advertisement, though. Well, there are a bunch, there are many arguments about broadcast advertising. Um, there's a camp, there are campaigns. Uh, I, I mean, in, the only way broadcast advertising actually becomes a thing is the advertising agencies step in and basically sell broadcast advertising as if it were a product. Um, so they, they you know, plan articles and newspapers and magazines, they write books um, and, they, and they say, oh, you know, and, the, and they get uh, other advertising agencies to say, oh yeah, we could do this. We could make these, at first advertising agencies are like, no, too much trouble. Nah, this is a flash of the pan, not gonna do this. Um, and, and, you know, we'd have to hire people who know about audio, eh, no, too much work. And then eventually, you know, you know, there's other heads prevailed and they came along. But it it wasn't just everyone woke up one day and said, "Oh yeah, this will work." It, it, not at all. It took a, it took some sort of serious um, campaigning, I say, uh, to to make that happen. I, I mean, it didn't last. It wasn't, you know, well, you know, it was about a decade. Um, so uh, you, you'd think. Yeah, I actually don't think people like advertising. I I think they they people have made peace with it, um, and they'd rather have targeted advertising than advertising about stuff they don't like. So they I, so for me, I I leave the targeted. Ad, I much rather see those ads than see the ads that are you know designed for someone else. This is the lesser of two evils. Uh, to me, targeted ads are. And, and and could it be that as, you know, we need better content to tolerate advertising. So as content get better, it gets better with, you know, baseball broadcasts or dramas on the radio. Then you said, okay, I'll settle. I'll sit through that Ovaltine ad now because it's, it's better, right? But yeah. if it's not good enough, maybe we don't tolerate it. I, you know, I think that's true. I, I mean, I think it's, I, I think we don't, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think that people were listening to sort of amateur musicians and they weren't that great and there wasn't a great reason to turn on the radio maybe. And, and then when the, when the content got better and, you know, and how do you get better content? Somebody's got to pay for it. Uh, and that's a little unclear. Although I always say that. And then I think about all the people watching other folks do crazy things on YouTube and watching other people's pets on YouTube. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure what I think of as better content is really what everybody wants to see and hear. Well, 
let me let me pitch some because I was thinking about that because I read from your book that distance and content quality were the big drivers towards larger scale or larger scale radio. And yeah. the interesting thing, I think there's a very big difference in podcasting. Uh, there are two big differences. One, it is technically easy to match the quality of a corporate podcast because uh, production quality production tools are available. It's easy to purchase sound effects and music on the secondary market and things like that. It wasn't always easy. I mean, it, it's a 10-year ramp up as well. You know, I listened to those early podcasts and it wasn't always easy. But, but well, the quality was was different. Uh, and then the second thing is podcasting can micro-target in a way that radio never could because radio had some geographic bounding and so you couldn't target to hyper niche art audiences whereas in podcasting you can a, a high quality guest might be the person who writes dungeons and dragons games which uh, you know for a dungeons and dragons podcast which might not be of much interest to jimmy kimmel but would be extremely interesting to this hyper niche audience and so there might be a, a quality playing field leveling Radio is in some ways, you could make a case that radio is the first mass medium and that, and, and, and it really does, it doesn't have, I mean, it, it's, the day is divided so that there's um, things aimed at women. This is, we're talking thirties and forties. So things aimed at women at, who are supposedly working in the home during the day. There's um, programs for kids in the late afternoon after they get home from school. And then there's um, things that would appeal to the whole, to all ages uh, in, in the late afternoon. Now, this is network radio. There's, there are African-American radio stations. There are, there are stations that do mostly music, even though there are fewer of those in the 30s and 40s. But, but in general, network radio had, you know, three big groups. Um, women at home during the day, uh, uh, kids after school, and then family groups in the afternoon. That's how they imagine their audiences. Um, and so they, that, it's a mass medium. It, it's trying to reach, it, it's not everyone. There are all sorts of people left out. Uh, but but it's, it, it's still a lot of the American public. And, and it's hard to remember now that that's what people were looking for. Uh, and, and then when television comes in, radio switches, right? It, it, its whole purpose switches. Uh, it becomes music uh, and then eventually talk. Uh, and, and television takes over the place of being the family entertainment in the living room. Um, so, so it all switches when television comes in. Radio, radio finds a new, a new purpose. And I would say what's so interesting to me, and I call radio sometimes the most flexible media, uh, because then it switches again, right? Uh, so when what we had loosely called new media, uh, when digital comes in um, and the everything, we're no longer mass like it was in the 30s and 40s, even though that's, you know, you know what I mean? It's a big, huge audiences. The music um, programs and the talk programs were smaller groups. There were niches there. You know, you, not everyone listened to the rock station. Not everyone listened to, to the conservative talk shows. Not everyone, you know, so they, they, they got smaller. And then when, when new media and digital come in, it, things got smaller again, but then radio reinvents itself again. It's still uh, relevant. 
um, still a way to talk to people. And so I always ask my students, is our podcasts radio? Uh, and how do you know? Uh, because it's very different than radio in the uh, in the ham era, which was person to person, or radio is broadcasting, or radio is a music and, or talk box. And then radio is this very um, sort of people talking to others who are interested in just what they're interested in, no matter whether that's huge groups or small groups, no one's pretending this is going to be um, for everyone. And so my students, it's a, it's a great class question. So is po our podcast radio. Where, where do you fall on that? Where do you fall on that? Where do I fall? Oh, yeah, of course. I, I think radio in the end is... Um, it is defined by its audio quality, its oral quality. And Susan Douglas, whose book on, who's on the history of radio is really the best. Um, and she says, and I'm not sure I'm, I'd go this far, but Douglas says it's, it's radio. She, she's basically a radio essentialist. She says there's something special about having someone's voice in your head uh, that no other, nothing else can match. It's a little, it's different. It's different than reading. It's different than watching. It's more intimate. Uh, and it's, it's, it just, it's, it stays with you in a different way. You engage in it in a different way. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I, I would say that the, the, um, the oral quality of it, um, and, and, and that I'm, I'm moved all the time, um, that, that a lot of podcasters and a, and a lot of, uh, people who've worked in radio over the years know the history in some way or another. So I, on Facebook, there's this great old time radio group that I, you know, lurk in and listen to these folks who are, who are hobbyists about old time radio. And they, you know, they people know the history of this form in some way. Uh, that's, that's very moving to me because when you're a historian, you think nobody, can, you know, what are, who cares? But but, you know, it's, it's like baseball. Um, some of the best uh, of American popular culture is very history-centric. So baseball, jazz, um, you know, some of these for art forms, cultural forms, are very, you know, they, they're self-conscious about their own history. And so it may, for me, mm. in some ways, maybe the, what makes radio radio is its self-consciousness. Yeah, I mean, it's all kind of, I was just going to say, it's, it's all kind of audio in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. It's... Uh, I remember reading an early, one of the early pioneers in podcasting said, podcasting is making audio more relevant again, like radio did. Yeah. I don't know if radio ever really went away, but it's in that same vein that they're both, uh, something about that connection with the, the, the speaker to the audience is, is different than other mediums. I actually find one difference, though, between podcast and radio, which is in the, um, the equipment, the physical manifestation of the medium, right? I remember going to these like big old houses in the south. I went to college in Atlanta and people still have these like big, huge radios, equipments in their house as like just just um, just an artifact of an era. But in this like in this 21st century mm -hmm. and people when people are saying that they are listening to podcasts, everybody has their own cell phone and it's not like a family activity. Yeah, no, but that changes. That changes with the introduction of the transistor. So that's a that's mm. so so. When I was a kid, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, but really, you know, in the '60s, um, it, it, radios became very small. Um, so they were the size of you know 
two packs of cigarettes. And so they, and, and that was new and kids could have their own, could have their own radios. And that's the beginning of rock. Uh, because if you don't have to sit and listen with your parents, if you have your own radio, it's not big, sits in mm. the middle of the living room, but you can take it to your bedroom. You could put in earphones, which we did. I mean, they don't, they're a little different than they are now, but it, I had them uh, in the 60s and your parents didn't know what you were listening to. You weren't turning into the same programs they were on TV or anywhere else. It was personal. So radio became personal pretty quick, not in the 30s and 40s. But after that, with the transit, the introduction of the transistor, we could make these really small um, uh, receivers that. But I think you're right. The, the personal stuff may have come in later. Um, just maybe a little earlier than you thought, surely before Apple. Uh -huh. So I, I have a question. What were the decisive factors? So we were, radio was developing and there were a variety of different sort of ways of organizing content production for the medium. And eventually production crystallizes around this, um, uh, this commercial model, at least it becomes dominated by this commercial model. What, to your mind, were the decisive factors that led to this outcome? I just think, in the end, it's the way in which American capitalism is organized. Uh, you know, it's it's you know the idea is uh, Americans are very two things. Americans are very nervous about big companies and want them broken up. On the other hand, they're also very nervous about government-sponsored um, news uh, and um, culture. Uh, that has never been a thing. It, it's it's too expensive. Americans don't want to pay for it. But it's also true that people worry that that it'll be um, manipulated. So Americans didn't want a BBC. They didn't want the government to have a role in this broadcasting. Um, and so, it, you know, if it's expensive, it has to be national. It, the government doesn't want a role. The, the idea in American capitalism is that you can make money from everything, from every piece of what you're doing. I think then, you know, all these things came together, the way in which the, 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 um, the, the, the companies were broken up so that AT&T, so Westinghouse made the, made the receivers, AT&T made the, um, the network um, and then they they brought together another and other entities that they spun off to do the content. And then it seemed it, that that worked for the way in which American um, industries were corporate world was working. So they, they came to an agreement that things would not be so big. There would be no government interference. Um, and that and that and then the deal was then you can make as much money as you want. Hmm. And, and there weren't really any competing models for monetization or anything like that. I mean, there That's were. Fair. There were all these. I mean, there were all these people who talked back. There were, you know, there were a million models. But then all these different factors just started to lay on top of each other. Uh, and then that's how you get, I mean, that's, that's what history is. You just find out what are all, it's not inevitable that it happened this way. There were other options, but when all the different factors all started to line up, cultural, political, social, um, you know, then and economic, then, you know, they, the cards just started falling and then dominoes, I guess, fall. The dominoes. You know, I fall. did in reading your book, though, gain an appreciation for how many non-commercial 
organizational forms did persist. And I was lowballing it before I read your book. Like, I forgot, you know, college radio did very yes. well. NPR still persisted, even though it's sort of kind of yes. commercial in a way. It's not. Uh, but yes. there were other forms. You talk about uh, the Department of Agriculture sending out. Uh, yep. They had a big radio program. Yep. And then, of course, you can't forget the the sort of political realm. So um, uh, labor unions had radio stations. Pacifica Radio lasted for a really long time. You know, now, you know, sort of the the democracy now is this sort of offshoot of Pacifica. Um, so you can still see some of those um, things. They're not the they're not right in the middle. They're not the big money makers, but they're there. I, I agree. I, I And I, you know, I think. And just because they lost <laughs> in some ways that this lottery doesn't mean they don't exist or they're not important or they're not the roads not taken. They, you know, we can't learn a lot. And my goal is always I, what I said when I wrote the book and, and people wasn't, there were some critics of this, but I said, I think the goal is to, when a new technology gets introduced, to remember all the options. Uh, you know, they, the, the cards don't have to line up that way. Maybe they could line up a different mm. way. It hasn't worked yet, <laughs> but you never know. I, you know, I, but then, you know, that's basically a Marxist here. And, you know, I just, at any moment that, that you know, something might change and we should be ready for it. And that's, um, and I, I think, you know, the podcasting has been, I stopped a couple of times. Podcasting has been very moving to me because, you know, it's so rich. There's so much going on. Um, a lot like FM radio in the 70s, you know, that was a really yeasty, interesting period. College radio, really interesting, important. Um, I've done a little bit of looking at all of those. And I, I stopped a couple of times. I'm just starting to leave. And I've stopped a couple of times. I was just thinking of this was another time I've stopped a couple of times, dipped into podcasting, you know, wrote some little things and, you know, just to see what's going on, listen to a bunch of stuff at, you know, intervals every four or five years, um, just to see what's happening. I have Google Docs of my students and, you know, what's your favorite podcast? And they trade things. My students make, they make ham radios in the beginning. Amazing, of the really? The beginning <laughs> of the course. Yeah. And then at the end, they make a podcast. Oh, that's uh, You know, so, you know, and get neat. to think about, um, you know, does the technology change the content? How much, how much is the content, you know, connected to the technology? How much is it connected to the economic models? How, how the, how the form and content are funded, um, you know, and, and, and what would they like to hear on the radio? What if you had yeah. control? Uh, you know, what if, what if they really broadcast the things or, or narrowcast or stream the things you want to hear uh, rather than what's, you know, some corporate giant wants you to hear. So big picture as a radio expert, <laughs> what do you think are some of the big insights that we might take from the history of radio and meditate on when we think about the present development and future podcasting? Well, I, I think I said, I, I'll just repeat in some ways what I said before, which, which professors love to do, um, which is that, <laughs> that there's, there, there are and were um, other options uh, for how um, media gets funded. Uh, and I think it's useful to remind ourselves by looking at that history um, that, there are, that, that there are other possibilities. 
Um, and so we can open our brains and think about those possibilities um, as we, you know, go forward in developing content or, or thinking about for my students where they're going to work and, and how they're going to make a, a, a career or how they're going to be an audience member and a, and a critic. Um, so, you know, just think of, don't think of these things as handed to you as, as finished. Uh, this is the only way it could be. Um, think about it as having been forever, for a long time, malleable. Uh, and if it was once, it can be again. I just had a follow-up question on that. If I agree with you. When I see te different technologies developing, there's always seems in the beginning to see uh, to be a plethora of options and and kind of channels it can go to. Yes, but in the United States, is it something about capitalism that always kind of narrows it down into the same profit kind of oriented way? Because like radio could have gone a different ways. I think we're all kind of looking at right now. Podcasting could go a lot of ways, but I, but maybe I'm a pessimist. I think it's going to kind of converge on this for-profit model? Am I being too right, pessimistic think even about if it? it does converge on that for-profit model, like, you know, this idea that you, unless you win all the marbles, you haven't, you know, nothing has, <laughs> nothing good has happened. Um, you know, I put for me as each time new, a new technology gets introduced, there's this very yeasty period and you get to enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I think of FM radio, uh, you know, the, when AM radio gets too crowded and too commercial, that, you know, people go looking for something else and they find FM radio and they experiment there for a long time, um, you know, a decade. Uh, and then that becomes that people figure out, oh, we can sell, we can sell those um, time on those stations too. People are actually listening. But, and you know, it may be that these keep narrowing and getting shut down, but there's always something else opens up. I don't mean to be completely Pollyanna about it, but I do say, tell people to look, you know, this is a great moment in podcasting. Go listen. You're alive at the moment where there's there. That's where the excitement is. Go find the excitement. Uh, go find the new technologies and see what's happening. It may be that it doesn't last long, you know, hmm. I, but I'm it's more like a cycle. Than, and, than and, yeah. Well, but you're trajectory. right that it's the cycle. I, I, we know who always wins. The house always wins. Uh, <laughs> but then what, you know, but that does that, that doesn't keep you from, from, gambling. Uh, you know, there's fun in the game. <laughs> that was Susan Spullian, Professor of American Studies and Public Humanities at Brown University. Her book is Selling Radio, The Commercialization of American Broadcasting, 1920 to 1934, a 1994 book published by the Smithsonian Press. And I was glad to have got my hands on it. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Susan. I really enjoyed it. It's always fun to go back to radio and remember why I like it. <laughs> that was Susan Smullian, Professor of American Studies at Brown University. Uh, her latest book is Doing Public Humanities, a 2020 book with Rutledge. And today we spoke about Selling Radio, The Commercialization of American Broadcasting, 1920 to 1934 with Smithsonian Press. To learn more about our work, visit us at queenspodcastlab.org. Thanks for listening.